Hello. Everest Galois, geometer and revolutionary. Thus it says on a commemorative French stamp made in honour of one of the most enigmatic and unusual mathematicians in history. He lived a very short life in the first half of the 19th century, dying when he was just 20 years old. But during that brief span, he produced work that, after his death, would go on to revolutionise mathematics in the years to come. Today, we will not only discuss the extraordinary details of his remarkable life, but also give a flavour of the kind of mathematics that his ideas gave rise to. Uh, with me to discuss Everest Galois' work and his life are Chris Nichols, a third-year default student in maths from Balliol College, and Benjamin Green, a final-year default student and lecturer at Balliol College. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, I think if I look at the plan that we've made together correctly, we're going to alternate between some uh, vague uh, details of his mathematics, but also the, the details of his life. Chris, when was Gawa born? Can you tell us a bit about his, his, his upbringing and where he came to mathematics? Sure, I can try, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so Gawa was born in 1811 uh, to a relatively well-off family but they didn't have any history of mathematical ability, in fact. So it was quite surprising when he developed this. He was actually taught by his mother until about the age of 12, and his father was eventually to become the, the mayor of his town. When Gawa does eventually go to school, is he a successful pupil, or um, yeah, what do his teachers think of him? Yeah, his teachers aren't actually that impressed sometimes. <laughs> Although their, their comments are not always that consistent. For example, one teacher actually describes him as uh, singular, bizarre, original and closed. But in, in fact, it's, it's exactly this originality that we remember him for. So, <laughs> Yes, I think the word, it's a wonderful word, singular, because if you read a lot of, say, Arthur Conan Doyle or Sherlock Holmes books, he used singular to mean like an odd occurrence, which is certainly never used in the English language now. So whether being singular is good for a school pupil is certainly up for debate, I guess. Um, but it's funny, I would say that all four of those adjectives describe Gowardin's work just to a T. This teacher really yeah. huge <laughs> perspicacity to understand. Whether he meant it as a conversation <laughs> or not. Um, he discovers mathematics when he was about 14, 15, and um, this has a huge effect on him. And, there's something that his teacher said about his, his mathematical ability at that time. Right, right. So his, his teacher at the time, um, when he actually enrolled in his first, first mathematics class, um, said that it is the passion for mathematics which dominates him. I think it would be best for him if his parents would allow him to study nothing but this. He's wasting his time here and does nothing but torment his teachers and overwhelm himself with punishments. So it sounds to that that he, he, he found his messier. Yes. He, he found his messier and he, he, exactly. he went for it. Um, yeah. And I think at this time he's reading a lot of mathematics books that are, that are out there. But a, a lot of the things that he's interested in actually just aren't very well developed at this time. So what he eventually becomes famous for is his work in algebra. But a lot of the textbooks there really aren't so well developed as, as a modern student would, would see them. If, if you read a modern textbook on algebra, it would be very, very different to what you would get if you read a book at that time. Ben, what do you say was the mathematical culture at the time, the mathematical inclinations of um, people in Paris? Then? Well, I think a lot of mathematics then was developed to try and solve quite practical questions. So like people like Poisson or Fourier, you know, they have famous mathematical results associated with them, but which were often used or developed to try and solve practical mathematical problems and, or solve practical real-world problems which had a mathematical angle. And what Gawar himself became famous for, though not during his lifetime, like many years after his death, was for much more abstract mathematics. And that is essentially taking a question which may be quite natural and trying to look at it 
far removed from the original problem. And as Chris mentions, kind of algebra as a modern mathematics student would learn about it would have been very, very different from the way that Galois or even people, you know, say 10, 20 years after his, his death would have understood algebra. It wasn't properly developed maybe until the late 1800s um, in the manner that most students now would consider it. Exactly, if I recall correctly, in, was it 1808, when uh, Fourier introduced this, the Fourier transform as we now know it, which is a major method of mathematical analysis, um, it was to, um, to help solve the heat equation and understand heat propagation in bodies. So it was, as you say, a very practical question that yeah. what is now a pure mathematical method, but it was motivated by a very practical problem. Let us now do our first little stint of some of the actual mathematical content of Galois' work. Ben mentioned to us that um, uh, Galois' work within algebra, in particular, is involved with solving equations, and it's a particular kind of equations called polynomial equations. And that's a very long word, but Chris, that's not such a scary concept. It's very similar to what many of our listeners would have studied at school. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, examples of polynomials are things like, um, well, 1, 2, <laughs> but, but also things like x, x squared, x squared plus 1, this kind of thing. And Where x is some unknown Exactly. So x is some unknown quantity, and I guess you can think of it as it's a formula that you can substitute some value of x into if you wanted to. So you could look at something like uh, x squared plus 1, and you can say what value does it take if x is 1, what value does it take if x is 2. Um, and the thing that Galois is really interested in is what kind of solutions there are to this thing equaling 0. These solutions are called the roots of the polynomial. So I think at school, um, people may be familiar and maybe hated this quadratic equation. So exactly. this is where you have a squared. So x squared plus 3x plus 1 equals 0. Exactly. Things. But, but you're saying that the interesting question is when you have maybe x cubed or x to the 4. Exactly. So, so as, as maybe you remember from school, um, I mean, not you, because I'm sure you do remember. <laughs> but remember that the quadratic formula that gives you a way to solve any equation of the form x squared plus ax plus b, where a and b are some numbers. And the idea is that, uh, suppose you take some equation like x squared plus 2x plus 1, and you want to know what values of x can give a solution to this. So what values of x you can put in that'll give x squared plus 2x plus 1 equal to 0. Um, and there's even a formula that tells you exactly when you can do this. So you can consider that case completely understood. But when you go to something like a cubic equation, which is something of degree 3, maybe x cubed plus 2x squared plus x plus 1, then it gets a little bit harder, but uh, people can still come up with some formula to solve this. Ben, when was this cubic formula discovered? This was done by Italian mathematicians in the 1500s. So Cardano's method is the standard method now, at least, for solving a cubic equation. I believe that was actually published by Cardano, not developed by him. Um, basically gives a form, formula very similar to the quadratic equation formula that some of our listeners might remember, um, which is just slightly more complicated. So the quadratic equation formula, if you have a quadratic ax squared plus bx plus c, then your formula for its for the solutions minus b plus or minus the square root of b squared minus 4ac all over 2a. Exactly. There you go, I still remember some school mathematics. Exactly, yes. <laughs> depends on a, b, and c. And similarly, for a cubic formula, it will depend on the different coefficients which appear in the cubic formula. So, of course, there are at most four of those, and in the quadratic case, there are three of those. And fairly soon after um, mathematicians had developed a way to solve the cubic formula, 
they also came up with a way to solve degree four polynomials. So again, you get a slightly more complicated expression, now depending on the five coefficients which appear in a general degree four polynomial. And, and the thing about these equations is, you know, once mathematicians had found you know, degree three and degree four one, it was a natural question to ask, well, if you give me a degree five polynomial, is there a similar formula for this? And so on. So a formula just involving the coefficients, I guess there are six coefficients now, is a x to the five plus b x to the four, etc. Yeah. Formula just involving those coefficients that will give me a solution to this equation equaling zero. The exact statement about what we mean by a formula is, I guess, slightly complicated, but you recall in the quadratic formula, Basically, you had to add coefficients together, divide by them, and importantly take a square root of them. Now, similarly, in the cubic formula, there are additions, division, multiplication going on, and there are square and cube roots. And similarly, in the um, degree four equation, there are fourth roots. So basically, what they were kind of hoping for was in the degree five case, and if you kept going up, that you'd be able to just get a formula involving basically addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, and also taking roots, so square roots, cube roots, fourth roots, and so on. Fifth and that, roots, and that yeah. exactly, and that, and that would be how you could state all of the solutions. That's what they were hoping for. Okay, so we have from about the middle of the fifteen hundreds this very natural conjecture, I guess, that for any fifth degree polynomial there is some formula that takes the coefficients and gives you a root. Chris, so Galois worked on this question, and this is, you know, by the early 19th century, so it's been unsolved for a very long time. And a few years before uh, Galois, there was a mathematician called Abel, a Norwegian mathematician. Um, and we can let the cat out of the bag now. What did Abel manage to prove? So Abel actually proved that there's no formula for the general degree five polynomial. In the, in the form that Ben suggested. So it, it may be that for a particular degree five polynomial, you can find the roots. For example, if I take the polynomial x to the five minus one equals zero, then certainly one root is x equals one. One to the five, that's equal to one. Subtract one, that's zero. But the idea is that if you just give a general polynomial of the form ax to the five plus bx to the four and so on, then there's no formula just involving roots of some degree and coefficients in, in this polynomial, which is amazing because, you know, you have this natural idea where you, you say, okay, well, I can solve degree two polynomials, we can eventually solve degree three polynomials, and then degree four, and it really looks like this pattern should continue. I mean, there should be some way of rearranging your coefficients, taking roots to get the solution, but this amazing result that it's not possible. It's completely extraordinary and, I think, very, very surprising. I think there's a, a reason why it took so long for mathematicians to discover this, is just, you know, who would expect that this would be the case? Uh, let us turn back to Galois and his uh, life. So we've left him at around the, the end of school. Ben, he tries to get into the Ecole Polytechnique, which is the premier school in Paris at the time. Um, how does that go? Um, well, it doesn't go very well for him. Um, he was um, rejected from the Ecole Polytechnique, which was something that he was obviously very disappointed about. He'd, as we heard kind of earlier, he developed a real passion for mathematics and um, the Ecole Polytechnique was founded by a mathematician in the late 1700s, so it was certainly the premier place in Paris and indeed one of the best places in the world to be studying mathematics because um, in France there was quite a tradition of good mathematics around. And therefore, yeah, so certainly for um, 
for Gower, it was incredibly disappointing to have been rejected from this school. So he instead had to go um, to uh, the Ecole Normale, or actually I think it was called um, something slightly different at the time, but that's what it's known as now. Um, which I think you mentioned was a teacher training college. Yeah, it, it, it was the place where if you were going to go on to become some kind of secondary school teacher, that was where you did your, your academic training. Um, and in fact, it was housed in some kind of annex of the building where Galois Secondary School was. Yes. So it was very much, a, you know, still confined within the same yes. uh, place. So he, he was very unhappy to be there. But, but he, he, he tried a couple of times the Ecole Polytechnique and... Um, yeah, there was something rather sad that happened in his life just before the second time. Um, yeah, his father committed suicide in 1829, I think. A few weeks after the, the death of his father, he actually tried again and, and was rejected again. And I think also um, the, so the, his, the suicide of his father, I think, was related to... We mentioned that his father was a mayor of his local town. It, it was related to the, the various political upheavals that were going on in France at the time. So that... Perhaps this was something that, as we're going to talk about in a bit, Gawar was, was very involved in the, or certainly wanted to be very involved in the politics um, to do with the monarchy or being anti-monarchy that was going around in France at the time. And therefore this might have pushed him even closer to being very tied into a political ideology. I mean, <laughs> revolutions uh, to a penny in fr France in the 19th century, but so this uh, July 1830 revolution... Uh, the current uh, monarch at that time, Charles X, gets uh, chased out of Paris, and you know, the, you know, the monarchy is, is reinstated, but um, it is a time of great upheaval in, in Paris. At around this time, I mean, we'll, we'll lied over lots of details, in, in early 1831, Galois submits a paper to the Academy, uh, for, for submission to a prize. Um, Chris, can you uh, tell us a bit about what was in this paper? And it, it's history, it's story. Absolutely. So, so this paper is actually about the insolubility of various equations in, in the way that we've, we've discussed before, using roots and, and functions of the, of the coefficients. But not many people actually liked this paper because the main statement is that if you have a polynomial of prime degree, so for example, uh, it starts with x to the 5 and then some other things, or maybe it starts with x to the 7 and some other things, then... It's solvable in this way, uh, which we can, I guess, refer to from now on by radicals. Solvable by radicals means solvable by a formula of the kind that Ben yeah. discussed earlier. Exactly. It's solvable in this way, if and only if, whenever I take uh, one of the roots, I can always express it as some function of two other roots. So, for example, suppose one of my roots, suppose I have a cubic polynomial and I call my roots alpha, beta and gamma then the condition is that I need to be able to express gamma as something like uh, alpha squared plus beta all over alpha. So it's, it, it's some function like this in terms of alpha and beta. Technically, I guess I would call it a uh, rational function in alpha and beta. But this is slightly um, peculiar because we, we talked about trying to understand in terms of the coefficients of the polynomial what the roots are. But Gawas, rather perversely, he's saying, well, you can understand the roots if and only if the roots have this property. Exactly. So this is not a very checkable condition. <laughs> because at the end of the day, what you're trying to understand is the roots. <laughs> and to understand this thing, you need to first find the roots. It, it, it would seem a priori. He submitted this paper for a prize at the Academy. And what happened 
What actually happened, I think, is that the paper was lost. Um, so Fourier, who was, uh, we've, I think, briefly mentioned before, was a very famous mathematician who was um, in charge of collecting these entries for the prize and presumably was involved in deciding who received it, actually died at the time. And it's not quite known whether the fact that Galois's manuscript was lost was connected to the fact that obviously there was this discontinuity in the procedure because the person in charge of the prize died during it, the decision-making process. But this manuscript that Galois submitted was lost, and in fact the prize was um, given instead to Arbel and Jacobi, um, which is in some sense quite um, kind of funny coincidence given that Arbel in fact also did work very similar to Gauss. So this was in fact not for... Um, Written to Galois. So yes, very similar to Galois. Um, and this was, but this work that he got the prize for was in fact not um, this work on solving certain polynomials. Um, it's also perhaps worth saying that Arbold himself had in fact just died in 1829 at the age of 26. Um, so it was quite a collection of young mathematicians dying prematurely in Europe at the time. So there's something about <laughs> trying to solve equations by radicals yeah. leads to early death, it seems. Yes. Is, is, is yeah. the, the inference. Um, okay, and before we start to return to some of the, the methods that Galois used, maybe uh, setting this up, how does Galois' work differ from Abel's and why are we making a show about Galois rather than Abel? How did Galois make a more fundamental contribution? So Galois' contribution, I suppose, wasn't really realised by the general mathematical community until a few years after his death. But it really set up the path for modern algebra. It's the first to actually make the link explicitly between whether a polynomial equation is solvable, uh, by which I mean whether we can write down all the, all the roots in terms of these radicals, and, and permutations of the roots, by which I mean take the roots and consider different ways in which you can rearrange them. So if I had the roots alpha, beta, and gamma, then I could equally well consider the roots gamma, beta, and alpha. So it's just different ways of arranging the roots. And Galois made the link between the ways in which these roots can be rearranged and whether or not uh, the equation is actually solvable in terms of radicals. There's a guy called Raffini who also wrote this kind of massive book on this subject, which he sent to Lagrange and Lagrange didn't read. Um, but um, <laughs> it's... Um, this explicit study of these shufflings of the roots, and these okay. of the roots, first, I mean, of course, it's under the surface in the previous work and in Abel's work, but it's the first mm -hmm. time it's really explicitly mentioned at the surface is in Galois' work. And the reason this is interesting is because this paved the way for much of modern algebra in terms of studying things abstractly and really gave the first idea that there should be such a thing to study as permutations of things. So... What I'm saying is that the modern idea of this thing called a group, which is, is incredibly important in modern algebra, was really somehow invented in, in this idea. Okay, we've mentioned the magic word, it's called a group. So every first year mathematical und undergraduate, uh, the world's over probably, um, will learn about a group and what a group is. And this notion was first introduced as a seed in, in Galois' work. Benjamin, can you explain to our listeners what a group is and how, how they should think of it? Yeah, I think, um, you know, you can certainly try and gain... So, um, Gawa himself and ma other mathematicians at the time who were just beginning to develop the idea of a group would have essentially considered a group as what um, modern mathematicians would have thought of as a subgroup of the permutation group. So let's kind of try and explain what that is. 
A permutation, which we've actually mentioned a few times in terms of the roots, basically just means swapping things around. So for example, I might have three roots, say I label them one, two, and three, and a permutation of this would just be, for example, I could swap one and two and not swap three. So that, that's a permutation, or I could send one to two, two to three, and three back to one again. And this is also a permutation. So the important thing is that everything is sent to something else, but you don't send two things to the same thing. So one and two can't both be sent to three. It's just shuffling around, like yes. a deck of cards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, for example, I mean, the classic kind of thing that maybe people are very familiar with is something to, for example, a Rubik's Cube. So there are lots of different ways that a Rubik's Cube can look. You want to obviously make it look so that all of its sides are the same colour. But, of course, you can keep kind of turning it and make it look like many different configurations. And this is basically something to do with how many permutations there are of the way a Rubik's Cube can look. And therefore, in some sense, quite, you know, in terms of one fairly naive way that you could try and think why group theory is useful. If you want to, say, solve a Rubik's Cube, you might want to therefore try and understand how many different permutations there are of the way it can look. And by understanding how you get from its kind of the state we want it to be to this weird state, I can try and get it back from this weird state to the state I want it to be in. So by understanding permutations, I can try and solve, for example, a Rubik's Cube. Um, and the kind of important, I mean, there are a number of kind of abstract properties that a group is meant to satisfy, but really for the purposes of, I think, for this podcast, it's fine for our readers really just to think of a group as some subset of permutations. So, for example, we talked about um, permutations of the uh, numbers one, two, and three. So it turns out there are six possible permutations of this, but you might not necessarily want to consider all six of them. So you might just want to consider a permutation which doesn't do anything, so everything stays the same, and a permutation which switches one and two, and that's all the permutations you want to consider. So I think it's probably okay for our listeners just to think of a group as some kind of permutation of some object, of some set of things. And the, the insight is, Chris, uh, explained for us is that the structure of the ways you can swap these roots of a polynomial is somehow intimately connected with whether you can solve it by radicals, which is it's extremely bizarre. So it's, it's very important, in fact, to define exactly what we mean by um, swapping the roots in, in this example. So, so in what we just said, we, we said if you label them one, two and three, then you're allowed to swap them and so on. But the way this gets restricted, and the reason you wouldn't use the whole permutation group, is because you're only allowed to swap certain roots. And the rule is as follows. You might notice that, in fact, when you start with some polynomial, sometimes it can be broken down into smaller polynomials. For example, if I start with the polynomial x squared minus 1, then you can see that, in fact, this is equal to the polynomial x plus 1 times x minus 1. If you just multiply things out, uh, you'll see that the, the x terms cancel. So if you start with some polynomial, then uh, one thing you can do is just break it down. And the, these things are, are called the, the, the factors of the polynomial, the, the irreducible factors. And the rule for when you can swap roots around is when they belong to the same irreducible factor. So if I start with some polynomial, say of degree 4, and I split it up into some factors, maybe a degree 2 factor and another degree 2 factor, then this naturally gives the roots, um, it splits the roots into two collections, 
and within each collection, I'm allowed to permute them however I like. So say if we label them one, two, three, four, I could swap the one and two, I could swap the three and four, but I can't swap those exactly, across. Yeah. yeah, no, that's exactly. And I guess, I mean, it, in some sense, the situation is a tiny bit more complicated because as, as Chris mentioned, it's important that when we start with this polynomial, we break it down as kind of into as small bits as we can so we can see which routes are allowed to be swapped with which other routes. Now, it does so happen that, in fact, the permutations which are allowed are, in fact, sensitive to the coefficients of the polynomial. And that might seem quite surprising in some sense, but if we, there's any hope at all at trying to find these, you know, when is a polynomial solvable by radicals using group theory, well, we know that these radical, these polynomial equations are meant to be sensitive to the coefficients. That's our ultimate goal, was to find roots in terms of coefficients. So it, in some sense, it's good that the group theory is sensitive to what the coefficients were, because if it wasn't, that would somehow mean that, you know, my finding a general equation, um, which was meant to be sensitive to the coefficients, if the group theory isn't sensitive to the coefficients, then there's some kind of disconnect between the two methods. Thing I'm trying to get at is the fact that if you have an irreducible polynomial degree 5, the Galois group can be S5 and it can also be C5 and everything in between. Mm. So I think that the kind of important thing that listeners should take away is that you break things down into as small components as you can, your irreducible factors, and then some subset of the permutation of each of the roots of the irreducible factors is then allowed. But exactly what subset you have to determine and is sensitive to the coefficients of the polynomial themselves. Okay, so that was five minutes on group theory. I think it's incredible. Um, again, returning to Galois the man, um, he's submitted this paper to the prize it got lost, and he submits it uh, again to be refereed um, for a journal. Who did he submit this paper to? So this is in 1831, uh, and he submitted it to Poisson. And Poisson, in fact, invited him to submit this paper, um, but because perhaps he felt bad for losing the prize <laughs> submission. Uh, and this was also rejected, I think. Um, yeah, um, and so this is Jul uh, January 1931, and by July the referee report comes back, and Gawa's in prison at this time through him being arrested on Bastille Day for revolutionary goings-on. Um, Prasson rejects the paper. We're in uh, summer 1831, um, so what uh, happens in Gawa's life that leads him to such an early death? Um, well, so obviously he's incredibly disappointed and I think also angry by his the rejection, or the second rejection, I guess, of his paper. Though the first rejection was due to it being lost, so maybe it isn't a proper rejection. Um, so in the meantime, um, he had been, I think, was in a nursing home due to a cholera outbreak, which was been experienced in um, France at the time. So this was, he was transferred um, to this nursing home in early 1832 and he actually continued to pursue his research while at the nursing home he was working on um, revising the memoir rejected by Poisson yeah. and but, also I mean this is having had I saw a year or so of not producing so much mathematics no exactly yeah. due to being imprisoned um, in the, in the <laughs> which is perhaps not the best environment to produce <laughs> any kind of um, original research um, but he also so it's around this time that it appears that he'd um, um, found a love interest of some kind after him he left the nursing home he was then challenged to a duel um, and it's it's quite unclear um, whether this duel was due to his kind of revolutionary involvement whether this was about um, his republicanism or whether this was due to um, his kind of his love interest and whether this um, well who why he was challenged. For, for my lover I mean, I mean yeah. he, he, there are 
two sources for what this jewel might be about, and they say different things, so we just, we just don't know. Exactly. Well, one was a letter to his parents, and one was a letter to his great friend, Chevalier. But we're not sure, yeah. Well, what would you say to your parents? <laughs> Love interest or revolutionary? Well, I probably wouldn't get in a jewel. I, mean, <laughs> I suppose so. Um, but so you, you mentioned this guy, Chevalier. How does Chevalier come into our story? Yes, yeah, so Chevalier is actually very important in publicising Galois' work in the end. So, so Chevalier is one of Galois' friends. And Galois, in a letter to Chevalier, this, this letter we just mentioned, before the duel, says, um, please, you know, if anything happens, can you try and get my work to Gauss, Gauss and Jacobi? Jacobi being one of the winners of the prize that <laughs> Galois actually submitted to. Uh, Chevalier takes it upon himself to, to do this, but has a slightly unusual way of doing this, which is just to publish Galois' work uh, without actually mentioning this, it seems, to Gauss or Jacobi. Yeah, but so this is now a very famous letter, the testamentary letter, you know, written on the eve before the duel, where, you know, at the duel, Gawa got shot and he died in hospital two days later. So this is uh, as uh, ill-fated a romantic hero as you can choose to get. But, um, but yes, sorry, please continue, I, I interrupted. No, that's fine. <laughs> so Chevalier uh, takes upon himself to publish Gawa's work, but it doesn't seem to be noticed at all by... Uh, Gauss or Jacobi, who, who were the original intended recipients of, of, of Galois' work. Uh, let us have our final mathematical chunk of the, of the podcast. Now, an undergraduate student uh, learning about Galois theory uh, today will learn this thing called the Galois correspondence. This is not a thing that's so present in Galois' work precisely, yeah. but it's how it was in interpreted later, is that as yeah. I understand? Yeah, that, that's a fair assessment. Um, so with a lot of this, uh, with a lot of um, modern Galois theory that you know, undergraduates, indeed, I'm involved in teaching, as is Chris, also teaching undergraduates here at Oxford, um, the Galois theory you learn would have been quite alien to Galois himself, and somehow this is a fairly common mathematical theme where people get topics named after them that they may have were originally connected with, but they might have been quite surprised by the directions that they've taken. But yes, yeah, so um, the kind of most important result um, for the Galois theory that people are taught today um, at university is this thing called the Galois correspondence. And we've mentioned um, group theory a bit, so how um, integral to Galois' work is these kind of subgroups or subsets of permutations. So we might not be able to allow all the permutations of the roots, but we're allowed some of them. And it's very important um, this what subset this is associated to each polynomial. And essentially what the Galois correspondence does is it relates different subsets of these permutations to, some, to something called different subfields. And these will, I think, talk about exactly what a field is and what a subfield is in a set. But essentially this is relating the subgroups of permutations in some way to the roots of the polynomial. And therefore you can see how this was quite important in terms of defining the formula because it gives an explicit um, relation between the subsets or subgroups and the roots of the polynomial itself. Well, so let's just go and mention what a field is. So it's, a, it's another abstract algebraic object. Absolutely. So a field is just any number system where you're allowed to add things, subtract things, but also divide by non-zero things. Obviously, you can't divide by zero. That's the thing everyone remembers from school. <laughs> so if I'm thinking of an example, I guess um, every the, the numbers on the number line are real numbers. That's Exactly, that would be a field. So if you take some number like 2, some number like pi, multiply them together, you get 2 pi. This is also in the real numbers. Um, if you take 2 
pi and you divide by, you divide two by pi, you get two over pi. This is also a real number. And uh, so the real numbers are a field. But I guess the, the whole numbers, the integers, are, are not a field because I can't divide. Exactly. So if I take two and I take one and I try and divide one by two, I get a half, which is not a whole number. But maybe there's the a way of fixing this. Yes. So, so all that went wrong with taking the whole numbers is that you can't divide uh, by whole numbers. But what if we just say, okay, well, let's try and find the smallest thing which does include all these divisions. So what if we just say, okay, well, you definitely need to have a half as well. You need to have a third, a quarter, and so on. But you also need like five over two and so on. And then you notice that what you're describing are just all fractions with whole number divided by whole number. So all, all these fractions are the rational numbers. The rational numbers. Corbis, um, so that, that's another field. But there are more exotic versions of these. Yes, exactly. And in some sense, what will what's integral to the Galois correspondence is the idea that, well, as Chris says, so what essentially the rational numbers are, or just fractions, is it's saying, if I want to have the whole numbers, but I want to turn them into a field, I have to be able to divide by them. And the rational numbers is essentially the field that you get created from your positive integers. And what's integral to Gower's and the Gower correspondence is that you take your rational numbers, which we've decided is a field, but I also want to be allowed to have certain roots of this polynomial, which may no longer be rational. And therefore I need to essentially take the smallest field which contains my rational numbers and the root. So for example, if I have one root, which is say like the square root of two, then I have to be able to um, add multiples of the square root of two to itself. So I have to get any multiple of the square root of two. I have to be able to divide by the square root of two and, and so on. So you can see how essentially the procedure for coming up with the rational numbers or just fractions can be generalized by kind of just adding another thing that we have to be allowed to have all divisions by and all additions with. And this is in some sense the kind of the fields that we'll be interested in primarily. Well, so let us, as the climax of our discussion of this abstract machinery, nail down this correspondence. So we have on the one hand these certain allowed shufflings of the roots of this equation, these permutations. Yes. And then on the other hand, we have the field that comes out of this operation that Ben just described of, I have my equation, say, x squared minus 2. And then I have the root of that equation, which is the square root of two. And then I grow the field out of that and all the, the fractions. The Gower correspondence is what type of connection between this field object I have on the one hand and this permutation object on the other. If we consider the uh, permutations first. So it's a, let, me, let me give an example. So suppose I have roots alpha, beta and gamma. And suppose I'm allowed to permute them however I like. So I can take... Uh, alpha switched with beta and I can keep gamma fixed or I can switch alpha with gamma and keep beta fixed then to any one of these subsets of these permutations which is consistent I can associate a field and the field is going to be contained in the field which contains all the roots part of the philosophy of Galois theory is you want to have the minimum field that you can to contain everything so of course, one, one could just move to, well, maybe not of course, but, but one could just move to um, the complex numbers, which would have all of your roots in it, but would also have lots of extra things that you don't need. So perhaps you, you wanted to have um, a square root of two, but the complex numbers also have a square root of three. You didn't need this, so you don't want it. Um, 
So what you do is you, you, you go to a small field which contains all the roots that you wanted. And then this connection is between a subgroup of your permutations and a subfield of this field. They're in direct one-to-one. -one direct one-to-one -one correspondence. And Ben, as a final comment, how does finding these subfields corresponding to the subgroups help to solve the equation, which is ultimately what we're trying to do? Sure. Well, so it turns out that, so as Chris mentioned, these, if I, for example, in the degree three case, if we're allowed to have all permutations, then one of the permutations would just be swapping, say, the first and second root around and fixing the third. And therefore, the subfield this is corresponding to is when I take the rational numbers and just adjoin this third root, because obviously we said this permutation fixed the third root. And therefore, if I just take a field made by the rational numbers and adding my third root on, then this permutation will also should fix everything in this field. And this is how the correspondence is meant to work. Now, what the Gawar, so how Gawar's results are interpreted um, nowadays is essentially to do with what type of group the whole permutations, all the allowed permutations are. So there's various different types of groups, and the crucial type that we're going to be interested in is something called soluble, which sounds very suggestive <laughs> given we're trying to solve equations. And it's these types of groups that allow us to come up with um, equations for solving um, polynomials. So for example, we said that we, we know that we can solve a quadratic. We said that you can solve a cubic and a quartic. And the reason for this is that for example, in the quartic case, the, the most permutations that we could have if all the permutations of the numbers 1, 2, 3, and 4, and if you count them, there are 24 of these. And it turns out that this group is a soluble group. Now, it's probably not worth getting into what the technical definitions of this means, but similarly, all the permutations of 1, 2, 3 is also a soluble group, and the permutations of just 1 and 2 is also a soluble group. However, when you go into the degree 5 case, in some cases, you might want to have all permutations of 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And this group is no longer soluble. And it's this connection, which, as in, is, you know, not trivial to establish, that shows why a degree 5 polynomial in D, a degree 6 and higher, cannot always be solved by radicals. But of course, as we've kind of suggested, sometimes they could be. Because it may be that your degree 5 polynomial, it's... Um, associated Galois group, this group of permutations, might not be all of the permutations of 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. It might be a smaller group, and this might be soluble. So it's sensitive to the specific coefficients, and that's um, kind of determines what this group of allowed permutations is. The change in abstract algebraic structure when we go from 4 to 5 on the group theory side is the reason why five is, is different. Exactly. And I think what this maybe indicates is we talked about how you know, surprising maybe this result would have been, particularly, say, in the 1500s, where people were coming up with a cubic and a quartic formula. And it's just because, well, given I've come up with a quadratic, a cubic and a quartic formula, surely I should be able to come up with a quintic formula because it seems to be fitting a pattern. And what the kind of point of abstract mathematics is, is it's allowing us to kind of see the situation in a different light. And when we connect this problem to group theory, and you consider, you know, what groups are soluble, it's not too, it's fairly easy to show that the group of um, permutations of one, two, three, four, and five is not soluble. And therefore, suddenly, this isn't quite so surprising anymore, because there's a very obvious change 
in the group theory structure between degree four and degree five, which you don't see if you just look at polynomials themselves. And this is in some a good kind of advert for why abstract mathematics is actually has a point to it. So it allows you to better solve the original problem that you were trying to. I couldn't agree more. Um, in the final minute of the show, we've mentioned uh, Chevalier, who, who took Galois papers and published them initially, and 10 years later gave them to Louisville, who in the 1840s began to begin the real publicization of Galois' work, which was then taken up for the rest of the 19th century. Chris, what would you say are the most important uh, applications of Galois' uh, work, and maybe more importantly, his ideas? So Galois' work has been incredibly influential across abstract algebra, um, and just in terms of the sheer number of questions that this gives you more access to. So, for example, number theory, which is my area of research, um, in fact, all of our areas of research, <laughs> um, one, one big area of number theory is all about can you solve certain equations? So not necessarily just polynomial equations, but maybe equations in two variables. So instead of just x cubed plus one equals zero, you want to know what are the solutions to maybe y squared equals x cubed plus one. So I've got two variables there. And understanding these kind of things from different uh, viewpoints, which is what Galois gives us access to if, if we look at abstract algebra, is just incredibly, incredibly useful. But outside number theory, I mean, has abstract algebra had other applications in other areas? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, and abstract algebra has just become its own subject. I mean, you know, there are plenty, you know, there's a whole research department here which does, you know, algebra or representation theory, which are both offshoots of maybe the stuff that Galois started researching all those hundreds of years ago. Almost all areas of pure mathematics now involve some form of abstract algebra, and not just pure mathematics, applied mathematics as well. And that's why we talked a lot about how when first-year mathematicians come here, what group theory they learn. There's a reason why you learn group theory in first year, and it's because it underpins all of or so much of the mathematics that you do later on. So pretty much any area of mathematics that we could mention will have Kind of well, in particular, like any um, theoretical physicist uh, yes. will know a huge amount of group theory because it, it underpins yeah. all the... Yes, it underpins yeah. Yeah. and chemistry, chemistry, yeah. Yeah, chemistry <laughs> these permutations or symmetries are also important in studying yeah. molecular yeah. structure. And it all started at Galois. Well, we're out of time, but thank you very much for uh, weaving us through so much uh, during the time, and thank you for, for listening.